that we've been referring to already uh, in the service, this uh, story of a dinner party. If you can kind of have in mind Quail Valley, Windsor, Riamar, just sort of have in mind that, okay, if you can imagine that. This is a dinner party. It's a black tie affair. It's a black tie affair that we're reading about here. Luke chapter 7. And there are three people, three characters who are at the center of this story. Simon, who is the host, he put together the guest list. He invited all of the people who came, one of whom was Jesus, the second person. And then the third appears to be an uninvited participant at this black tie affair. So with that little bit of uh, introduction, focus on these three characters and uh, watch the interactions. Hear the word of God, Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, 500 days wages, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, this great record of your ministry in the house of Simon with this woman. Grant us your spirit as we think about it together. Minister to us. Lord Jesus, you know that the bottom line here 
is that we better understand who we are so that we might better understand who you are. And may our hearts be as full of gratitude to you for our salvation as was this woman's heart for her salvation. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, we're looking at the passages in the Gospels that show us Jesus and his encounters with people, uh, with all sorts of people. Um, And we're doing this because we're asking the question, what kind of king is King Jesus? What kind of king is King Jesus? Um, Jesus is the North Star, okay? Jesus is the North Star. You know what a North Star is. It's, it's if you're navigating and you don't have fancy computers and electronical equipment and you're in another century and another time, if you've, got, if you've got the stars, if you've got the North Star, you've got a fixed point in the heavens and you can know where you are and you can know where you're going if you have that fixed point. And if you don't have that fixed point, if it becomes clouded over or obscured from view, you're lost. You don't know where you are and you don't know how to get where you're going. Jesus is the North Star. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish pastor living in the 1600s. He was born in the year 1600. In fact, I got a birthday present from some friends this last, yes, it was my birthday. Yes, I'm a year older. I trust I'm a year or at least a few minutes wiser as a result, I get this wonderful little gift, which is some excerpts from the correspondence of Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford suffered greatly for his faith. Samuel Rutherford was known for his love for Christ. He was exemplary. Archbishop Usher came to his church, came to see him, but he disguised himself because he didn't want to be recognized, but he wanted to come to Rutherford's church and hear Rutherford preach because Rutherford was so well known for his piety, for his love for Christ. But you read Rutherford's correspondence and he says things like this, I have little, little of him, yet I long for more. I think I see more of Christ than I ever saw and yet I see but little of what may be seen. I know what the North Star is. I know where it is. But I see it so poorly. I see it so indistinctly. It gets so covered over and clouded over. Rutherford, who was known for his love for Christ, knew in his own heart that he needed more of Christ. He needed more of the North Star. That's why we're doing this. I I said two months ago when we started this series that I needed to be reintroduced to my first love. And that's, that's why we're doing this. And I'll tell you, I still have emblazoned in my consciousness this sense of being stunned at the parable of the prodigal son. I can't get that picture out of my head that there is no seeker in the third panel of that three paneled parable. And the reason there is no seeker in the third panel of that three paneled parable is because the seeker was standing in the midst of the people surrounded 
by tax collectors and sinners. The seeker came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. The true elder brother left his father's house, all of its comforts, to come into the world for me, to find what was lost, to save what was lost, and to take what was lost back home to the Father. Now that picture, I know that this passage, Luke 7, doesn't follow sequentially what we saw in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, but it explains and helps us understand what is going on in this passage. That Jesus would be in this place because he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That helps me better understand what's going on here. And let me suggest to you that there are three things that you see in Jesus at this dinner party. And just remember, Jesus doesn't come into the world to be a prophet. He is. He doesn't come into the world to perform miracles. He does. He doesn't come into the world to be a great teacher. He is. He comes into the world to seek and to save what is lost. And you see that in this passage, in this true-to-life story, three things about Jesus. Jesus is willing and able to go where he needs to go. He's willing and able to go where he needs to go. Jesus is willing and able to say what needs to be said. And Jesus is willing and able to forgive what needs to be forgiven. He's willing and able to go where he needs to go. He's willing and able to say what needs to be said. And he's willing and able to forgive what needs to be forgiven. First, Jesus is willing to go where he needs to go. He's willing to go to the house of a Pharisee. Verse 36, that's where this passage begins. He's willing to go to the home of a Pharisee. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Now that's an extraordinarily significant thing. Why? Think about it. Why would Jesus go to the house of a Pharisee? The Pharisees are the enemy, folks. The Pharisees are after him. Go back to Luke chapter 6. I mean, this, oops, this happens sort of right out of the chute. If you just go back, and I don't know how many days this occurred before this dinner party. Don't know how many weeks, perhaps, this occurred before this dinner party. But in Luke chapter 6, the first 11 verses, and particularly in the second half of that passage, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Jesus does a thing that the Pharisees do not approve of. They do not approve of doing the kind of thing that Jesus does on the Sabbath. In the first part of of that passage, Jesus feeds his disciples, basically. and, And then he heals. And in both cases, he's working on the Sabbath. He's working. He's he's pounding grain, if you will, on the Sabbath because his disciples are hungry. But then he heals on the Sabbath. By the way, this is I remember preaching through Mark's gospel and being struck by this from one of the commentators. 
so ironic that the Pharisees would be upset with Jesus for doing these kinds of things on the Sabbath, working in this way on the Sabbath. If you think about the whole goal of the creation, where creation heads, the direction that it goes, it goes from brokenness and chaos in the direction of order and restoration and wholeness. Jesus is doing the very thing that you would expect the Messiah to do on the Sabbath because he's taking people from chaos and disorder, from destitution and emptiness to fullness and completion and wholeness. Why wouldn't you expect him to do that? You should. But the Pharisees didn't like that sort of thing. And the point that I just want to make here is that in verse 11 of Luke chapter 6, the Pharisees were filled. This is a great rendering of the language. They were filled with Fury. Fury. Filled with rage, filled with anger. It was evident that they were outraged at what Jesus was doing. And they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And Jesus receives an invitation from a Pharisee. And Jesus is willing to go to the house of the Pharisee. That is a stunning thing, a striking thing to me. I don't want to be moralistic about this, but I have to tell you, I'm I'm significantly confronted by the fact that Jesus was willing to move in the direction of his enemies. It's Jesus who tells us that we're to love our enemies. It's Jesus who tells us that we're, when we're asked for our cloak, we're, we're to give more than the cloak. We're, we're to go the second mile, not, not going the second mile with those who are like us, with those who love us, with those who approve of us, but our enemies. And I don't want to be moralistic about this, okay? But as I... As I look at this dinner party and as I look at Jesus doing what he does, it's very convicting to me that Jesus moves in the direction of those who despise him, who hate him, who eventually will be the ones who conspire with others to put him to death. And he moves in the direction of those who hate him. Again, I don't want to be moralistic about this. I I, I don't want to say to you, and I don't want you to hear me saying, Jesus was a good guy. Jesus did this kind of thing. So you go be a good guy, and you do this kind of thing. Okay? But I do want you to see, and maybe it's just me, I do want us to see that this really is, this is what it is to be a Christian. This is what it is to live the Christian life. It's not Jesus standing off at a different distance and saying to us, go do this, go be this way, go move in the direction of your enemies, go move in the direction of the child who has hurt you, who has broken your heart, go move in the direction of the spouse who is abusing you, who is hurting you, go move in the direction of the person in the church who has alienated from you, who has drawn a wrong conclusion about you, who has spoken ill of you. Jesus doesn't stand at a distance and say, go do this thing and you'll be commended by your Father in heaven. 
Remember, the elder brother left the father's house. The elder brother came into the world and moved in the direction of his enemies. Not only moved in the direction of his enemies, but embraced his enemies and embraced the guilt and the shame and the sin of his enemies and was impaled for his enemies, raised to newness of life for his enemies so that his enemies now reconciled to the Father and changed by this grace by getting step behind Jesus and walk following Jesus in the direction that he wants. There's a difference between Jesus standing at a distance and saying, go do this, and Jesus himself setting the path for us, inviting us because we belong to him to get in line behind him and by his grace seek to love the way that he is loved. Boy, that is hard. That is hard. But here is Jesus doing it. Here is Jesus moving in the direction of his enemies, moving in the direction of this Pharisee. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know that name probably. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the one who said, when Jesus bids a man come and follow him, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. Die how? Die, well, die the hardest death that a human being will ever die. Physical death is not the hardest death you'll ever die, trust me. Death to self is the hardest death you will ever die. And Jesus, when he bids us come and follow him, bids us die to self and move in the direction that he moved, in the direction of those who bitterly despise us even. Now, we don't want to be naive about this, okay? Don't want to be silly. Don't want to be foolish. We want to recognize that evil is evil and wrong is wrong. We don't want to be naive. But the first challenge, it seems to me, from this passage is to look at Jesus and understand that he gladly moves in the direction of those who oppose him. But look at him also as he moves in the direction of this woman. He doesn't just move in the direction of this Pharisee who is his enemy. He moves also in the direction of this woman who, frankly, is an enormous embarrassment. And we stay away from both kinds of people, don't we? We stay away from our enemies and we stay away from people who will embarrass us. Remember, this is, as I said at the beginning, this is a black tie affair. This is, it wasn't at Windsor, it wasn't at Quail Valley, it was in a home, but it was in one of those homes in Windsor. And it was a black tie affair. How do we know that? Well, here's how we know that. It was customary for Jews when they ate a meal, following Jewish tradition, to sit at a high table. That was the custom among the Jews. But because of the presence of Hellenistic culture over the course of a couple of centuries and more, even the Jews who really despised Hellenistic culture, despised the imposition of this culture upon their lifestyle, adopted certain habits and practices, and this is one of them. The habit not of sitting at a table on a bar stool at a high table or something like that, but the habit of reclining at table on pillows, leaning on your left arm with your feet extended out behind you 
and then using your right hand, so long as you're ambidextrous, you know. If you have to use your left, use your left. But leaning on the left arm and eating by taking food with the right hand, with the feet extended out behind. It was a Greek custom. And it was a custom that was observed on special occasions like this. This is a black tie affair. And presumably Simon would have invited all of his buddies, all of the the other Pharisees. It was an invitation-only thing. And they brought Jesus. Now, why did they bring Jesus? Well, they may have brought Jesus because the reputation was out there. We don't know. All we know is that Jesus is invited. Maybe because they had heard of a healing or, or they wanted to hear from the newest rabbi in town. Who knows? The point is that Jesus comes. But then there's another person who comes. And that other person is this woman. She is an uninvited invited guest. We don't, we don't get any of the details of how it is she gets past the guards, you know, how she gets past the, the black ties and tuxedos at the door who welcome the guests. I'm telling you, that's the kind of occasion this was. It was a big deal occasion. But she breaks through, she gets through, maybe she comes in through the kitchen, we don't know, but she gets into this dinner and she comes to Jesus and interrupts the whole thing and everybody there knows who she is. Everybody knows that she is either a prostitute or more probably the proverbial homewrecker. Perhaps like the woman of John chapter 4, the woman who had had five husbands and who was with a man who is not her husband now. But she clearly had a reputation. Now, you know, I'm, 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 do, I'm trying to convey to you the sense of what is going on at this dinner party. And what I want you to imagine is that your pastor is invited to a black tie affair at one of those homes in Windsor. And we don't recline at tables here, but we are seated at our place settings where there are name cards and where everything is done decently and in order in good Presbyterian form and fashion. And I'm seated at this dinner table. You know, I'm trying to think, who, you know, who is a person, who is a character who would sort of capture what's going on here? And the only one I could come up with is Pamela Anderson. I mean, imagine. And I know some of you are saying, who's that? And I, I don't want to tell you, but some of you know. And those of you who don't know, ask those who do know, and you'll know after the service is over. But imagine someone of that reputation breaking into this dinner party, dressed the way Pamela Anderson is dressed, appearing the way Pamela Anderson appears, being known by those present as Pamela Anderson, and she comes to your pastor and embraces your pastor. If he's seated, she tries to grab him around the ankles. And she's weeping. It's that disruptive. It's that embarrassing. It's that offensive. And then this woman, in this particular case, does something that is shocking. Utterly shocking. It is the most arguably the most provocative thing that a woman in this culture could do. She lets down her hair and having washed Jesus' feet in her tears, she wipes his feet with her hair. 
A Jewish woman only, only let down her hair in the presence of her husband in the privacy of their bedroom. For her to do this in a public setting was utterly shocking and embarrassing. And yet Jesus, Jesus does not retreat. He doesn't withdraw from her. He moves in the direction of Simon. He engages one who is his enemy. And he is willing to be embraced by one who has this kind of reputation and does this kind of shocking thing in public. Here's the point. Jesus is willing to go wherever he has to go, whether in the direction of an enemy or the direction of one who is so ostracized and cut off from society that just her presence, let alone her actions, are an enormous embarrassment to everyone present. And why does he do that? Because you never know what might happen. Jesus did. We don't. But we get in line behind Jesus. See, this is, I want this for myself and I want it for us as a congregation so much. I don't want us to withdraw from our enemies and I don't want us to retreat from those who are an embarrassment. I want us to seek by the grace of God to get in line behind Jesus and move in the direction of those who would bitterly revile us and those who would thoroughly embarrass us. Because when you get there, you never know what might happen. There are some of you in this room who if somebody hadn't moved in your direction, I mean, there's a sense in which that's true for every single one of us, but if somebody hadn't moved in your direction, you'd still be lost. You'd still be alone. But Jesus moves in the direction of people like Simon and in the direction of people like this provocative woman who was an embarrassment. Jesus then not only moves in the direction of people like that, he only, not only does what needs to be done, he says what needs to be said. And we can just touch on these two things, these last two things quickly. Jesus was willing to say what needed to be said, and he spoke first to Simon, and he addressed, and that's the obvious point of this parable, he addressed the self-righteousness of the Pharisee. Phariseeism, we've we've talked about this, but we we can't lose sight of this fact. Phariseeism is an elitism. For Simon, Simon was one who with his Pharisaical friends had constructed a code of theological understanding and a code of conduct which in their minds they were satisfying. And because they were satisfying that code of conduct, they were persuaded that God was pleased with them. And the implication of that is that because God is pleased with them and other people don't embrace the code of conduct, the theological understanding, don't conform to the theological understanding and the code of conduct, God must not be pleased with those people. That's what we looked at weeks ago. Pharisaism always creates walls. It always creates separations. It is a self-righteousness in the sense that it is self-constructed, and self-obeyed, and in it one becomes self-satisfied. 
and everybody else is outside the club. That's the first thing that Jesus addresses. He addresses Simon's self-righteousness, his Phariseeism, his elitism. Simon viewed himself as superior. And this woman had no business being in a place like this. In fact, who else had no business being there? Jesus. Because if Jesus had really understood who the woman was, and frankly, if Jesus had understood who Simon was, he wouldn't have allowed this woman to come into this party, much less embarrass him, embarrass everyone the way that she did. But you see, Jesus takes aim at this. He takes aim at this elitism. And what he exposes is Simon's self-righteousness and his lack of understanding of the true nature, the true nature of the religion of Jesus. He tells this parable about two debtors. Both are in debt, neither can pay. (laughs) Both are in debt, neither can pay. The appearance is that one is a greater debtor than the other. It's Jesus being a good teacher again. It's Jesus subtly employing irony. It's Jesus subtly exposing the self-righteousness of Simon. Oh, Simon, yes, you are much better, Simon. You are much better than this woman, right? Wrong. Neither one of you can pay. You are both in debt. You are both helpless. Neither of you is able to pay what has to be paid. Jesus exposes the self-righteousness of Simon, seeking to remind Simon that we all are debtors. As we look around ourselves, as we compare and contrast ourselves, it appears to us that some are greater debtors than others. But obviously what Jesus is getting at here, the point that Jesus wants to make is that true Christianity, true gospel Christianity begins with an accurate assessment of oneself. Not as self-righteous, but as a debtor, desperately in need of someone to pay the bill for you. And what you see in the woman, what you watch in the woman, is a woman who has an accurate sense of herself, who knows how deep her need is, and who has come to see that there is a place where that need can be met. Throughout these these encounters that Jesus has with various people, I keep reminding us, that as we watch Jesus engage people, as we watch Jesus interact with people, we have to remember that we, each of us, is the person in the story. Mark chapter 1, the leper. I'm the leper. Mark chapter 8, the blind man who is healed in two stages. The gist of that teaching is simply the Jesus that I needed to save me at the first point 
at the beginning is the Jesus I need at this point in the middle of my Christian life. I needed him to begin to give me sight. I need him to continue to heal me and make me more sighted. Who's the blind man? I'm the blind man. Luke chapter 7, the widow's son. Who is the dead son? I am the dead son. And here the woman. Who is the one with the unsavory reputation. I'm the one. Remember Psalm 90. It's a terrifying thing to contemplate that the God of heaven and earth would expose the unseen iniquities of my soul. But isn't this the thing that Jesus is driving us to understand? That true biblical religion begins, true Christianity, the religion of Jesus begins with an accurate assessment of myself. That I am the one who is in need. And so Jesus says the thing that needs to be said to Simon, but he also says the thing that needs to be said to the woman. He does, here's this woman, weeping, tender, brokenhearted, needing compassion. You know, on the one hand, you could say, Jesus is here, to convict the comfortable, that would be Simon. That would be Simon. To trouble his conscience, and he does that. You could look at the woman and you could say, Jesus is here to comfort the convicted, and he is. But notice that he doesn't shy away from her. He doesn't say to her, oh, it's not as bad as all that. Don't be so hard on yourself. Lighten up. You live in Vero Beach. Jesus doesn't do that. He looks directly at the woman speaking to Simon and says, Simon, do you see this woman? Her sins, which are many. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven her. He doesn't retreat from speaking the truth both to Simon exposing his right, his righteousness and speaking the truth about this woman acknowledging the greatness of her unrighteousness and so Jesus goes where he needs to go he speaks what needs to be spoken and then he forgives what needs to be forgiven he speaks to this woman and speaks to her a word of peace. And let me just suggest to you, and I actually got this, this insight, this observation from Paul Miller, Jack Miller's son. For those of you who know who Jack Miller is, let me suggest to you that what you see in this story is a small little picture, just a little snapshot of the cross. Because what Jesus does with this woman is embrace her fully. He doesn't retreat from her, but he embraces her. He enters into her shame. He enters into her guilt. He enters into her being ostracized, and he takes it to himself. He takes it to himself. And that is exactly what Jesus does at the cross. Her sin, her shame, her guilt, her embarrassment, her being ostracized becomes his he embraces it. He takes it to himself. And that is exactly what he does at the cross. So that he can 
who can speak to this woman and say, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Nobody had ever said that to this woman before. Nobody. No religious person. No Pharisee. Nobody had ever said, go in peace. But Jesus, who takes the guilt, the shame, the humiliation of this woman to himself, as he does at the cross, speaks to the woman and says, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. So what kind of Savior is Jesus? What kind of Savior is Jesus, my Lord? He goes where he needs to go. He says what needs to be said, whether addressing the righteousness of Simon or acknowledging the unrighteousness of the woman. He's relentless. He's ruthless about both. So that third, whether you're coming from this end of the spectrum or this end of the spectrum, you might come to Jesus and be embraced by Jesus and hear Jesus speak peace, forgiving what needs to be forgiven. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much that you have um, you've left your father's house um, and you have come looking for people like us. Lord, please help us as we reflect on these things, think about these things. Please help us by your spirit to take it all seriously, uh, to assess ourselves rightly so that we might hear from you this word of peace, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. I pray, O oh Lord, for every person here that by your grace we each one might hear that word. We ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing just the first and the last verses of number 94. How firm a